0: Church, would you pray with me as we prepare to turn to God's Word? Father, you are good. And Jesus, you did go to Calvary, as the words to the song Corky just played reminds us. Father, you have given us your Word in which all of that which you did for us is laid bare so that we might see exactly who we are, our need, and your great love. God, I ask that now as we turn to your Word that you would speak. Father, would you remove from our minds those things that might distract God? Would you, as John said, would you make me less so that, Christ, you may be more? For it's you that we desire to hear from. And we pray, God, that you would speak now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, this morning we return to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 7. So, Galatians 3, 7. If you would open your Bibles with me to this New Testament letter where, if you recall from last week, we stopped in an odd or apparently odd place in this chapter, depending on the translation that's in front of you. The NIV has verse 6 as the opening verse in a new paragraph, as does the Holman and the NASB translations. In fact, the Holman renders verse 7, which is where we'll be picking up today, as a run-on. From verse 6. And so, as we began last Sunday, I explained at the outset our odd pericope composed of verse 1 through 6 so that you wouldn't think me that which Paul was accusing the Galatians of being a fool. It's not one without a brain, but consistent with the meaning of Paul's terminology, one who wasn't using their brain. And so in my defense, we noted how in the ESV translation, so the English Standard Version, verse 7 begins the new paragraph, where the reference to Abraham in verse 6 served to explicate the point made, verse 5, that God's work in believers is not done in response to obedience, but faith, as evidenced by Abraham who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Thus, verse 6's reference to Abraham acted as a concluding sentence to all that we saw together, if you were with us last week, where Paul chastised the Galatian believers for contradicting both Christ's work and the Spirit's work by their actions. In reverting to the law as their measure of spiritual accomplishment, the Galatians were in danger of nullifying the grace by which they'd been saved. And thus, as we concluded, the only question that matters as we consider our own sanctification is not what am I doing, but on who am I relying? In Emmanuel, we must not remove the cross's stumbling block, so to speak, as Paul describes it, where our ego is outed and our self is condemned in light of the grace of Christ's selfless sacrifice on the cross. Rather, we've got to daily call ourselves back to that on which our salvation depends. Faith alone, in Christ alone. And and this is what I believe Paul does in the verses that we're going to be examining together in the time that follows. And so if your Bibles are open to Galatians three, I invite you to follow along as I read from verse seven. Galatians three seven, where the apostle writes, Understand then, that those believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written "Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, these verses build on the dual emphases which we first encountered several weeks ago, if you were with us, when we studied chapter 2, verse 16, where there Paul distinguished the truth of the gospel when he wrote, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And in verses 7 through 9 here in chapter 3, they focus on the positive component of this principle, which is justified by faith, while verses 10 through 14 in our text address the negative, that is, not justified by works of the law, where both the positive and the negative arguments are linked, I believe, by their references to the person and work of Abraham. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to examine these two principles once again, as Paul has presented them, by considering Abraham's children, Abraham's gospel, Abraham's faith, and Abraham's blessing. So Abraham's children, gospel, faith, and blessing. And I believe that in doing so, the underlying truth of the gospel's continuity, that which we talked about or tried to make the point regarding with our children in the chapter books and the not chapter books, the underlying truth of the gospel's continuity seen through this lens, that of Abraham, will be unmistakable. So let's start with Abraham's children as referenced for us there, verse 7. Understand then... That those who believe are children of Abraham. This is how the NIV reads. If you have an NIV, the ESV offers, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are, are these children? And why is Paul so keen to identify them? Why Abraham? And why is faith his children's or his son's distinguishing feature? And to answer these questions, I believe that we have to keep in mind two things. First of all, the Galatian context the Galatian context, the churches to whom Paul was writing in this letter were, as we've seen, if you've been with us, fracturing because of false teachers who'd infiltrated these faith families proclaiming a gospel like that by which they'd been saved while at the same time subtly different. So rather than preaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, these guys were insisting on faith complemented by works. The spirit supplemented by the flesh, grace assisted by effort. It's a, a message that appealed to the sinful self, but which had no scriptural support. And thus, having heard about all that was taking place in this church and in these churches, and having realized the eternal ramifications of such a pseudo gospel wrapped up in the cultural clothing of Judeo or Judaic religious ritual. Paul employs this reference designed I believe to address the issue at hand namely his opponents commitment to the Old Testament law and insistence upon adherence to these rules as a means of ensuring salvation Paul's opponents viewed their their semitic heritage as as and with and with it all of its religious distinctives they viewed this as foundational to salvation for these judaizers as they came to be known Jewishness was part and parcel of being saved. In other words, you couldn't be saved without becoming a Jew first because the hoop through which you had to jump in order to gain eternal life or, or to achieve or to be gifted, depending on how you chose to look at this hoop and its purpose, the whole hoop was ethnicity. It's a fact that was established by God's law as given to His people. But, but, as we saw when Paul confronted Peter, being a Jew and living like a Jew had no bearing on one's eternal destination. Paul even said, chapter 2, Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I believe, I believe that Paul adopts the language of his opponents here. So referring to Christians as Abraham's children or sons, I believe that Paul adopts this language in order to further discredit his opponents' argument. Now, for we predominantly Gentiles who who live many years after Paul and his Jewish adversaries, such a row over culture as determinative of salvation seems silly, right? I mean, we'd never insist on others becoming like us in order to be saved. Belonging to Christ's body, the church, can't depend on such externals as appearance or require uniformity as regards tastes, be they nutritional musical or recreational. We would never, we would never require Christians to, to conform to our cultural norms or find somewhere else to belong. Would we? Would we? Friends, I don't believe that the ethnic distinctions Paul faced warp the gospel today like they did in the first century. However, I do see many churches so-called where those gathered reflect such a narrow segment of society, we'd be reaching to apply the apostles' description that's given us later on in chapter 3, verse 27, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free to their body. Now, almost certainly, it is true that in their church there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but not because they're all one in Christ, but rather because they're all Jews, or they're all Greeks, or, or cowboys, or millennials or traditionalists or contemporary worshipers, rather than displaying the unity and diversity, thus demonstrating the gospel's reconciliatory power, many churches in our nation are so singular in their appeal that they share much in common with these described here in the scriptures. But that said, Emmanuel, I am so encouraged by how diverse we are. Ranging in age, race, occupation, marital, status, musical taste, spiritual gifts. I mean, we could go on, right? Just look around. None of you look anything like each other or have much in common with one another. We don't even like to support the same teams when it comes down to it. But God has brought us together where what defines us is our commitment to the gospel. Church, may we never allow personal preferences to become the filters by which we seek to distill our fellowship. The Galatians context helps to explain why Paul spoke of Abraham's children. And a second frame of reference is also helpful here, as I said. Second frame of reference, and that is the biblical context the biblical context, because I believe that Paul has, he also has in mind here the story of Scripture, where far from being the history of a single people's origin, the Bible tells the story of the one, capital one, that Paul will refer to in verses that we're going to see together next week, that was Abraham's seed, and so almost certainly, and we talked about this somewhat with the children, there are subplots to the Scriptures and side stories with heroes and, and villains, with winners and losers, victories and defeats. But the meta narrative, as theologians describe it, meaning the story beyond, or the overarching story of Scripture, if you will, that's being told by all of the individual books in the Bible, the overarching story is that of God's rescue of His creation through His Son, the promised seed of Abraham, the one who would crush the serpent's head, the fulfiller of the Mosaic law, the son of David, Isaiah's suffering servant, Mary's baby, born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. And Paul knew this. He knew all of this. And thus, as he writes, I think, to the Galatians, he attempts to draw them back to or to get them to lift their eyes off of themselves and their immediate cultural concerns so that they can see the big picture in which culture doesn't matter. Culture wasn't the issue. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't suggesting that culture is a bad thing and that the gospel eliminates such unique societal boundary lines so that the church ought to all be vanilla. No, not at all. (laughs) Rather, the beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, we are a skin kaleidoscope, to use a Toby Mac reference that dates me and shows what kinds of music I like skin kaleidoscope. But sadly, we so often get hung up in secondary issues, don't we? And I believe that we as Americans in particular have a proclivity to this failing, as many of our nation's leaders, past and present, have viewed our land as the promised land. You know, set beside the stories of Scripture, America has often been conflated with Israel, where our forefathers escaped persecution in England, just as Israel escaped Egypt, and the opportunities offered by this beautiful land, land of the beautiful home of the free, share much in common with the milk and honey marked, that marked Canaan. And so we've been tempted to equate national citizenship with ecclesial membership. And despite our voiced desire, particularly we as Baptists, to keep church and state separate, it's been hard and is hard to adhere to this principle when we see the Christian values that marked our nation's early days being threatened and thus some of the most vocal advocates for restoring America have been church leaders who espouse a message that sounds chillingly like that voice here in Galatia. If you want to be like us, then you need to look like us and act like us. But, friends, Paul sought to lift his readers' eyes off of their local context and their regional concerns and remind them of God's mission. And so he re- reiterates that those who believe are children of Abraham. So it isn't what they look like or how they act that constitutes their belonging to the people of God that he promised to bless. Rather, it's their belief or faith in Jesus. So do you believe in Jesus this morning? Have you put your faith in Him, m- meaning are you relying on Him as your advocate such that when you stand before God at the end of life and are asked by the Father, why should I spare you the sentence your sin has incurred? Your answer will be because Christ has taken my place. He's my substitute. He's my Savior. I have His righteousness and He had my sin and shame, for which he was crucified. He died and was then buried in a tomb for three days before he rose, demonstrating your satisfaction, God the Father, with his sacrifice. This is why I'm your child. Do you believe in Jesus? And this is what Paul was pressing upon the Galatians, before whom, as he writes verse 1, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That's That's the gospel. But it begs the question, because of timing... Well, what was Abraham's gospel? What was Abraham's gospel? It's that which Paul writes for us there, verse 8. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And there are two two phrases here that I believe shed light on this question. And the first is, is generic, and that's conveyed by the words the scripture foresaw and the second is more specific as given by the words announced the gospel to Abraham and then that's followed by a quote so in essence what Paul provides us here i believe is attestation to the fact that the meta narrative once again that word we used earlier the overarching story of scripture which at this point would have been the old testament in its an entirety The meta-narrative of Scripture is God's salvation of men and women from every tongue and tribe who, as we've just seen, are Abraham's children. How? By faith. So, the entire Old Testament speaks to God's promised salvation. And this gospel was uniquely delivered to Abraham by the words, All nations will be blessed through you. It's spoken in Genesis 12 and verse 3, where God's word came to Abram as he was known at the time, directing him while he still lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. So that's Babylon. God's word came to him and said, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in church, in those words of Paul, I believe that there are two spiritual realities of eternal significance that we must see. The first is that the gospel is not a divine reactionary response to an unforeseen failure on the part of God's creation to fulfill his intended purpose for them nor is the inclusion of non-Jewish men and women a further accommodation aimed at making ancient ethnically elitist religion now palatable to modern sensibilities. What the story of scripture reveals, as Paul makes clear, is God's intended purpose from the get-go was the salvation of all. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. This was foreseen by Scripture and delivered to Abram, who at the point of his reception of this gospel was himself a Gentile, so to speak. Thus, church, the gospel we believe finds its origin in God's eternal will, which is, like God, unchanging. In other words, we aren't an afterthought. God's love for you isn't a late concession aimed at promoting equality. You aren't a token participant then in the gospel and a member of abraham's family you've been known and loved by god from before the earth was spoken into existence how is that for intentionality in relationship so the gospel isn't a response to failure that's the first spiritual reality here that i want us to see where the second given us leads to a third point as it's related to abraham's faith abraham's faith and the point is that belonging to god's chosen people or being considered Abraham's son or daughter has always been determined by faith or belief, not physical descent. Because you notice how Paul words it there, verse 9? So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this reference to Abraham as the man of faith harkens back to Genesis 15 and verse 6. We're following Abram's return from rescuing Lot. The word of the Lord comes to him reminding him of the promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, at which point we're told that Abram believed the Lord and he, that's the Lord, credited it to him, that's Abram, the Lord credited it to Abram as righteousness. So for Paul, the connection between those who have faith and Abraham is one of association, where those who have faith are one and the same as those promised, Genesis twelve three as being blessed, Through him, and their blessing is intricately tied to Abraham, who is in in this verse at least. He's the example of how the promise of blessing is accessed. And further, one commentator observes Abraham's special role in salvation history means that he's not just any example. His response to God's promise is foundational to fulfilling God's purposes and becomes a determinative paradigm. For those who follow. In other words, Abraham's faith response reflects God's established means of receiving all that he has promised. You don't get to heaven because you're a Jew, or by keeping the law, or by being good. And, church, this point is huge (laughs) because what we're seeing here is the fact that God's standards for salvation are like his character. Unchanging, Meaning there wasn't a different dispensation of grace for God's people in Abram's day that gave his descendants access to salvation. That then changed when Moses came on the scene and received the law. The Mosaic Law was not a new dispensation of grace intended to provide God's people with an alternate and updated means of salvation, which turned out to be a dead end because of people's sin issues such that come the close of the Old Testament, God was readying a new dispensation to arrive as a new covenant in which now salvation may be accessed by faith in Christ. No. No. What we see here is Paul's clear association of faith as the means by which people are justified before God, as was who? Abraham. He was justified by faith, just like we are. Now, if Bob Blankenship were here, he'd stick his hand up, because he did this to me the other night on Wednesday when we were discussing the disciples, and and he had an issue. He said, but Andrew, we're different. And he would say today, we're different from Abraham. And our faith is different. And yes, I would agree with Bob, so it's a good thing he's not here. I can call him out. We are different in the obvious way that we live in the 21st century while the patriarch lived many, many, many years in the past. And thus, Abraham lived before Christ while we live after. So we are different in that sense. However, the point that I believe Paul is making here is not one of perception or perspective rather, rather one of nature, in that our faith differs not in the least as it pertains to the nature of our faith. For we both, that's us and Abraham, we're both sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We rest, like the writer of Hebrews insists, in the knowledge that he who promised God is faithful to fulfill all that he has said. And this this isn't a restating in any way, or rather, this this isn't arresting, if you will, in anything that we could do or or have done, but simply a throwing of ourselves at the mercy of God. So have you done that? Have you admitted that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you plan and, and you prepare, you cannot predict the future or guarantee yourself tomorrow. You are weak and desperately in need of security. God promised Abram children as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And Abraham knew that this was impossible. Yet, he placed his hope in God. That's what justified Abraham or made Abraham righteous before God. Just as it is our faith, it's not our works or obedience to the law. And this leads us then to a fourth point as reflected by Abraham's blessing. Abraham's blessing, which Paul informs us in in verse 14, results from our redemption by God through Christ Jesus so that by faith we, along with the Gentiles, might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, what's Abraham's blessing here? And I believe, along with others, that there are at least two things that are associated with this promise, each of which is intended to remove the fear that we as human beings have of facing a holy God loaded down by our sin and the natural fear that we all have of death and dying. And the first truth associated here with Abraham's blessing, I believe, is justification before God. Justification before God, which simply means, as one pastor theologian explains it, that in spite of all your sin, God reckons you to be righteous. All the things that you've done or ever will do wrong are forgiven because of Christ. And God does not, therefore, hold your sin Against you. Now, I don't know of any cultural, intellectual, or technological changes over the past 2,000 years that makes this inheritance any less needed or less desirable today than it was for those in Galatia when this was written. And isn't that true, friends? Do you know that freedom that Paul is describing here? Or are you, as he describes in verse 10, are you one who's relying on observing the law? You're trying to be good enough. You treat others well. You don't judge. You allow them the space that they need to live their lives. And yet, as fair as you feel you're living, you can't shake the feeling that you're cursed or something because you simply can't find peace, at least not a peace that will last. Could it be this morning that you're, as one of those Paul references, who is cursed because you haven't continued to do everything written in the book of the law? Well, you've been close on certain days closer than others. But to be fair, who can do it all, right? Yet as close as you've seemed to come, you can't make it. And this shortfall just nags at you. And you can't shake the feeling that something just isn't right. And were you to die today, you're not sure what the outcome of a celestial court would decide. Friend, if that's you this morning, hear Paul's words. Hear Paul's words spoken in verse 11. Clearly. No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So, like Abraham, the law, he continues, on the other hand, isn't based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Friends, I pray that you're not banking on being more good than bad because, as Paul makes clear, this entire approach to salvation is broken because the law was never intended to save. Rather, salvation comes by faith or or belief in Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf, thus justifying us before the Father. So now we may stand before God without sin or shame since Christ removed it all. Isn't that incredible? So the first truth tied to Abraham's blessings is justification. The second, then, I believe, is the Spirit of God who seals us for eternal life. And this is the Spirit promised in verse 14, the end of which Paul would later write when he wrote to the church that met in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 13. Having believed, Paul wrote, so had faith, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So, Abraham's blessing. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So there's Abraham's children to the praise of his glory, God's glory. And this spirit is one and the same with Christ's spirit because when we get to chapter 4, verse 6, the apostle tells us here in Galatians 4, 6, that because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And this spirit is intimately associated with eternal life as revealed in chapter 6, verse 8, here in Galatians, where Paul explains that the one who sows to please his sinful nature... From that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, so this is the promised Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit, as we've just seen, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And church, I don't know about you, but the knowledge that God's Spirit's presence in our lives leads to eternal life and is evidence of of our experience of that life, (laughs) even in the present, it certainly makes the reality of life's brevity and uncertainty as we face the future far more palatable, doesn't it? Now, can you say with confidence, I am unafraid of death? Sincerely, I am unafraid of death. And I realize it's easy sitting in our congregation today to say so, but it's a whole other thing to be faced with the reality. But can you say in your spirit, I am confident in my soul's eternal destination because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. I I pray that you can. But if you can't, then in just a moment, as we worship in a time of commitment, we're going to stand and sing to that end. I, I would urge you to come and speak to me. I'll be down front, as you know, and I would love to point you to the answers that God has for the questions that may be burning in your heart and mind. Point you to His answers as they're found in God's Word. Is the promised seed of Abraham, the one through whom all nations would be blessed as they, like Abraham, believe. This is the gospel. He, Christ, has come. It's a gospel that has never changed. Christ redeemed us, as Paul said, by becoming a curse for us in order that we might share with Abraham in God's rich blessing forever, a blessing which is life with God for eternity. I hope and pray that this reality is yours. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are good, for only a good God would make such a good gospel available to people who did not deserve it, who are unworthy. Father, we praise you for the gospel and for how you have made it abundantly clear in your word Father, and this is not a hope that comes later on in the story that is a reaction to a failure to an earlier point, but rather it is the picture that you are portraying. It's the character, your character that you are displaying from start to finish. For this story is all about you, you the God who saves, not us, Christ the Redeemer, Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the story being about us and the universe revolving around us. Lord, errors that we've made even in the past with our observation of all that you've made where everything we believed at one point revolved around our earth. But now we've come to know it's not. It's around the light. Lord, and in a spiritual sense, the metaphor there, we find... All of life revolves around the light of the world, who is Jesus. Father, would you help us to see that? And if we've been questioning and unsure of, of where is and what is life's purpose, so easily distracted by temporal things that we can bring in to give us a peace in the moment, but that peace never lasts, Father, would you, by your grace this morning, help in eyes to see that only through relationship with Jesus Christ, can that which we desire most be found. Perfect peace. Peace with you, the God who made us. For you made our hearts, God, to rest in you. And we will find no rest until we find that rest in you. Father, thank you for making that rest possible through Jesus. And we give you praise in his name. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to stand and sing together. I know whom I have believed. Let's stand as we close. I'll be down front if there's questions that God has placed on your heart.